Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Sarah Montalbano back to the program. Sarah, you have been on the program numerous times before. Some folks are going to be meeting you for the first time. Take a moment. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Absolutely. I am Sarah Montalbano. I'm the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum. And in my copious free time, I'm also the Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices, as well as a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Okay. So you got a few hats that you're wearing. And I like that uh, when you and I get together, typically Alaska is usually going to come up in the conversation. And, And today... No exception. I'm looking at an article you wrote for National Review about how the Biden administration won't let Alaska responsibly develop its natural resources. And I I don't think Alaska is the only state that kind of feels like sometimes they're caught in this quandary. Well, you can either protect the environment or you can develop natural resources. But for some reason, it's like you can't do both. That seems like a false dilemma. I agree completely. And Alaska, I think, is just one of the best examples of this phenomena where, you know, you're being required to develop your natural resources so that, you know, you have a state economy and Alaska is so highly dependent on its natural resources that there's not so many options without it, uh, but that you're not being allowed to develop responsibly. And Alaskans take such care and pride in their environment uh, that this is really something I love to write about. And this article in National Review is just the latest example about the Ambler Road. Okay, so let's talk about this, uh, the, the latest, uh, what was it, the Ambler Mining District. Okay, now being, yeah. being someone here in the lower 48, I don't, I don't hear about a lot of these issues, but what lies within that mining district? Yes, so the Ambler Mining District, um, what, what is at issue here is building a road to get to the district so that you can build the mines there to extract the resources. Um, there's several mines planned. I believe there's four in the area that would be uh, pursued. And the most promising one uh, would produce 150 million pounds of copper annually, um, wow. zinc, lead, all of these technologies, uh, green energy technologies, need minerals like this, and the Ambler Mining District has a preponderance of them. But the Biden administration, and, and I, I presume, even if it wasn't the Biden administration, there are federal regulations, though, that have come into play, and it seems like these are always hot-button issues. Well, do we allow them in there to access these natural resources? It sounds like uh, a decision hasn't been announced, but it seems like the writing's on the wall that... Uh, the, the federal regulations aren't going to allow this. Yeah, um, the Ambler Road is a really complicated project as most Alaska natural resources permitting processes end up being. Uh, it was started back in, gosh, 2010, 20, 2013 or so, uh, submitted to the federal government. And then it went through the permitting process. It went through the environmental reviews. The Trump administration approved it and issued the permits for the road. And then the Biden administration walked it back pretty quickly after inauguration. uh, And finally, just recently released its draft environmental impact statement. It did not select any kind of preferred alternative is the ecological bureaucrat word for, you know, we have an option that we like. And if you don't pick that, it's, it's kind of suggesting that they're not going to approve the road at the end, but we still have to go through the public comment period and they'll release their final decision earlier in 2024. 
That's got to be frustrating on the part of state leaders. But I, I have to ask, in your opinion, Sarah, is is this more of an example of um, bureaucrats at the federal level just simply establishing, look, we have the final say. In other words, this is kind of a flex on their part to remind the state you're subservient to what we say or what we allow, because um, it kind of has that feel like you need to know your place. I think that's an interesting take on it. I don't think that's running through the minds of any individual scientist or bureaucrats working on this project. I think what's more likely is that the Biden administration has its marching orders on natural resource projects. Okay. And we can tell that this is you know, part of a pattern of decisions on the part of the Biden administration. The first was, um, I think I talked to you about this earlier in the year, but shutting down the Tongass National Forest for logging and road construction again. Um, that has been just totally cut off now. Uh, the Pebble Mine has also received a, an unfavorable decision from the EPA uh, under kind of unusual rule uh, in federal law. And Ambler is just one of the those patterns uh, of behavior we've seen from the federal government. The one exception has been the Willow Oil Project, which was approved, but only at three drilling pads instead of five. So it's barely profitable for ConocoPhillips to pursue at this point, but they're doing it. So that's the one positive we've seen. Sarah, it seems like when when serious legal challenges are brought up to um, utilizing natural resources, almost always the environmentalist lobby. And I'm talking, you know, the Center for Biological Diversity, et cetera. It seems like they're the ones behind these kinds of um, regulations. They want to see them enforced. They want to push for more of them. Um, is, is there pressure coming from environmental groups that's, you know, trying to hold government actors, you know, feet to the fire? You know, you've got to uphold these these regulations. That's safe to say. Uh, I would say that is certainly true. A large part of it is in the permitting process itself. Uh, the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, was reformed recently, but not in those reforms was shortening the statute of limitations on litigation and challenges. So that abides by the U.S.'s general six-year, seven-year uh, statute of limitations. And so that means, you know, you could be breaking ground on a project. You could be halfway through building the project. And People can still sue, make you stop. And if they find things in the environmental impact statement that they're concerned about, the judge can remand it and you start the process over again. That is one of the ways that litigation is being weaponized on these projects. And I think a large part of that does come from outside environmental groups who aren't Alaskans, who don't understand the dynamics here and are are willing to put their foot down about it. Interesting. So do the people of Alaska... I mean, are, are they finding representation at the state level that uh, I guess just is, is yet to be heard or implemented at the federal level? There's, there's, of course, none of this is unanimous, right? There's all sorts of people in Alaska, and it's not a, you know, a, a voting block in one sense of the word. Uh, what we do see is that there's a lot of Alaska Native voices who are in favor of natural resource projects because it brings economic prosperity and jobs to their communities and allows them to stay in these places uh, that you don't have to go to Anchorage to find work. You know, you can stay in your villages and enjoy, you know, the community that you've built here. Uh, So I think those voices are often not heard on the federal level. I think uh, our particular Secretary of the Interior right now is not uh, soliciting those comments as much. They're finding the people who don't want it and they're listening preferentially to them. Um, And that's that's just a, a huge concern because there are so many listening sessions and 
community meetings through all of these permitting processes that you should be able to hear from everyone what they think. And I think we're seeing only one side of the story. Sarah, um, we've got about two minutes left here. I want to ask, does it ever come to a point where the states are going to, uh, I'm I'm asking for some, you know, opinion here just purely, but do you ever see a point coming where the states, uh, particularly the Western states that have so much land that's under federal control, just have to assert, you know, that control? It just seems I, I'm looking at the the federal budget. I'm looking at the deficit. I'm looking at the debt. It, it just seems like it's so overextended. At some point, it's not going to be able to regulate the way it's been regulating. And I just like to would get. I'd like to get your take. Should the states? Could the states step up and administer those lands and natural resources? That's a fascinating question, and as a non-lawyer, I wouldn't know about the feasibility of doing so. Uh, I do think there's a lot of opportunities, especially in Alaska and the western states. I mean, less than 1% of Alaska's lands are privately held, privately owned. Much of it's the state, and you know, about half is federal government land. Uh, so I think we really need to see some of this reassertion of you know rights over your statehood. I think it would also help though if federal government bureaucrats lived and worked in the western states they're intending to govern. Uh, I think you would be able to live in those communities and actually hear from people uh, about these things instead of just flying in from D.C. and holding a listening session where you say, yeah, we've taken your comment, we've noted it, and then continuing to do whatever it is you plan to do in the first place. Uh, so I really think there's opportunities for valuable input, even without you know significant reforms to state lands policy. I like your take on it. I mean, I know there's a mindset in Washington, D.C. that's, I don't know, we've got the best vantage point possible to know what's right in every location, but there's nothing quite like actually being there on the ground among the people who have to live with it day in and day out to, you know, to help you appreciate that uh, maybe the, the view from the Potomac is, is a little over, uh, over-represented sometimes. Again, we're talking with Sarah Montalbano. She is a Young Voices contributor. In fact, you are the, uh, was it the uh, West Regional? Northwest, yeah. Yeah, she, she's out there looking for talent. Tell people where they can find you on social media. Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Montalbano and the O is a zero. And you can also find me on alaskapolicyforum.org as well as Young Voices. And I do encourage any interested uh, people from Western states under 35 to join Young Voices. Our application deadline is November 30th. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, happy to welcome Aaron Pomerantz back to the show. Aaron is a Young Voices contributor, and for those meeting you for the first time, Aaron, take a second here. Tell us about some of the other hats that you wear. Uh, yeah, so I'm a uh, social psychologist. I'm currently doing my postdoc at Rice University, uh, where I research, uh, among other things, um, cultural ideology and how that leads us to support harmful uh, beliefs and behaviors both for ourselves and for other people. And as well I, as well as doing that, I apply these ideas to uh, the study of leadership and leader development. 
Okay. Well, you're here to talk about a very timely topic. I'm looking at a piece you wrote for realclearworld.com. Rising anti-Semitism highlights the danger of toxic empathy. I'll tell you what, Aaron, I have been looking for explanations as I've seen the headlines of the last month or so. And there's a lot of confusing messages coming at us. There are a lot of very interesting reactions. Set the stage for us a little bit and tell us about uh, when we talk about rising anti-Semitism, when we talk about toxic empathy, where do those lines cross? Well, I think that toxic empathy, well, first of all, I wanted to find what empathy means in toxic empathy. Just you know, there's the whole there's the whole like thing and a toxic version of a thing. So empathy, psychologically speaking, means understanding and feeling other people's emotions, and it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a necessary thing if you want to do any sort of positive change in the world around you. You you have to have empathy. When I refer to toxic empathy, I'm referring to that impulse, but gone wrong. And in this case, with rising anti-Semitism, I think in the wake of October seventh. You, you in the Simchat Torah massacre, you really saw this basically the moment it hit the news. You saw a bunch of people who have no ethnic, religious, or personal connections to Israel uh, immediately having very strong takes, marching for justice in Palestine, quote unquote, saying things like glory to our martyrs, globalize the intifada, which is a call for worldwide violence against Jews. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Again, a call for the worldwide ethnic cleansing of Jews, in this case, specifically in Israel. And then justifying all of this and more, we're seeing it happening literally as we record this uh, at the March for Israel. They've already vandalized the medical tent, for crying out loud. Um, all of this sort of behavior is is justified, essentially saying, "Well, we're on the side of the victims here. You know, Palestine. We're all Palestinian." So there's this thought that there's a an understanding and feeling and solidarity with the supposed victims of injustice in Palestine, which then gets equated to Hamas, which then gets equated to uh, you know Islamic extremism and an adopting of Islamic extremist beliefs that violence and and anti-Semitic rhetoric are acceptable as long as you're doing it for supposedly Palestine. All the while ignoring the fact that you're not accomplishing any of this because when you're doing these these marches and you're saying these things, the only people you're successfully scaring are Jews in your area. And unless you happen to live in Gaza, those probably aren't people who have anything to do with the problem. Interesting. It's. I mean, I look. I know the history there is uh, is long and and it's somewhat complicated, but oh, yeah. uh, it just it just seems like this. And and I'm going to tell you right now. I'm coming at this from from an angle where um, I don't stand with Israel, nor do I stand with Hamas. I I stand for the innocent people who I think are on both sides that are caught in the middle of uh, of a lot of of bloodthirstiness that uh, that they really have no control over. But it feels like this is one of those um, news events that that is such a polarizing influence. I, I almost feel like it's being manipulated for the benefit of someone. Someone in power is pulling strings, and Lord knows there are enough people that are jumping to it that uh, it, it obviously hits home for a lot of people. Well, I mean, I think there is somebody who's pulling the strings. There are two somebodies. Uh, from beyond its its ideological grave, there's the Soviet Union. The entire Zionist, you know, use, use of the term Zionist to disguise anti-Semitism is an admitted and historically documented Soviet psyop. And I hate to use the word psyop because 
that term has been kind of co-opted, but that's okay. Really we got some firsthand experience with psyops over the last yeah. few years. Please go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you have it, Qatar, Al Jazeera, ma masquerading as a real news source when it's entirely Qatari funded. It is the state news source of Qatar. You know, Donald Trump mentioned he wanted a state news source. Everyone rightly was like, are you nuts? That's horrible. What country in the free world would want such a thing, like, you know, where the government gets to approve things? That's all Al Jazeera is for Qatar. And places like Qatar, and frankly, mostly Qatar, which is incidentally where Hamas's multi-billionaire heads are living, they're funding education, higher education. And they're funding uh, these programs, like Middle Eastern study programs, and a lot of other efforts that you can see having these anti-Semitic effects. You know, when people uh, say that they understand the Hamas, um, Hamas's point of view and Hamas's perspective, and they talk about the Hamas Charter, the Hamas Charter does use uh, progressive language. It co-opts it. And it's entirely designed to, to instigate what I'm calling toxic empathy. It's entirely designed to get young Western leftists to go, ah, they are fighting colonization. I must side with them. <laughs> I understand exactly who they are and where they come from. And in fact, if anything, I, this is my cause too. I am one of them, which is just stupid. There's no other term for that belief, but stupid. Naive would be maybe another one. Uh, you know, you have no idea how this functions. It it's vastly oversimplifies the issue. It's colonization. Okay, well, Jews are indigenous to Judea. That's why we're called Jews. Palestine is a Roman word that was inst uh, installed by the Emperor Hadrian. Like, like this is a very complicated situation. But because the word colonize was used, off goes the critical thinking, and in, up comes this idea that you can understand and, and feel for these people. And then, ironically, you actually make their situation way, way worse because you side with their oppressor, Hamas, people who have made it very clear they have no interest in peace with Israel. They suck in terms of any sort of actual warfare. All they can do is murder women and children. And so they're not going to win. They're only going to take as many of their own countrymen as they can with them. And we know this because they've been kind enough to tell us that they want their people to be martyred. And yet you see young Western progressives acting as if they have some sort of insider knowledge and that they know how things would be there. I think the, the best example of this that I've seen, or one of them, there's, there's a ton, is uh, somebody who said that uh, when it was brought up that there's a lot of anti-Semitic, uh, sorry, anti-LGBT um, attitudes in Gaza, uh, this person said, okay, well, there's anti-LGBT attitudes here too. And he started talking about Ron DeSantis in Florida. And I'll tell you, yeah, I'm no fan of Ron DeSantis. And in fact, we've literally talked about that before on this show. I am not a fan of Ron DeSantis. Yes, I do think he's incredibly homophobic in every sense of that term. But to compare what he's doing in Florida, which I think is truly and utterly awful, with the treatment of LGBT individuals in the Gaza Strip, which is lethal and involves torture and rape before killing them in awful ways, that's absurd. And to say you have sort of special connection and, and understanding with them because, oh, well, I know here's this one thing that's sort of like that, and I know exactly who they are, mm -hmm. and I'm going to side with them, and I'm going to you know, scream at, a Jew, at my Jewish classmates or anyone I see wearing a kippah or a Magen David or anything like that. It's, it's just... It's asinine, 
and it's it's empathy, quote unquote, but it's toxic because you're not actually feeling for a real person and it leaves you utterly unable to accomplish anything profitable beyond making yourself feel good. Aaron, as you point out in your article, um, true empathy requires objectivity. It's not about self-aggrandizement. It's not about self-righteousness. It's, it's, it's not about virtue signaling. But I see a lot of all of that taking place. And I mean, on all sides, I see, you know, there's... Mm-hmm. You know, if, do you have the right to flags in your avatar and stuff? It's it's the next thing, but uh, I I appreciate the insights that you you add to this, and I think we should have we should have empathy, you know, for the innocent, and hopefully dis- discernment for those who are not so innocent to, who nonetheless uh, know how to play on our our passions and and, and play on our, our our prejudices as well. Um, we're talking with Aaron Pomerantz. Aaron, for those looking to connect with you on social media, what's the best place to do that? Uh, you can do that at Twitter at pompom, P-O-M-P-O-M, 9211. All right. Thank you so much. like that we are back welcome to segment three of moving forward with young voices i have nicholas thielman with me now he is a young voices contributor and nick for the sake of those who are meeting you for the very first time um, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do hi i'm nick i uh work at cato institute center for monetary and financial alternatives i'm a research associate there i am also a frederick bastiat fellow at the mercatus center and then i am also a master's student in political science at george mason university All right. And in his spare time, he writes great articles like the one we're going to be discussing, uh, which was published in realclearmarkets.com. Now, I only was made aware of the Farm Bill just a couple of weeks ago, and it was by another uh, Young Voices contributor. But I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed your take on how reforming federal crop insurance requires paying off the losers. And Nick... I didn't realize that uh, the Farm Bill, which at this point, I guess, is expired, um, the fact that it's expired doesn't mean that uh, federal crop insurance policy is still going to continue, right? Yeah, so federal crop insurance is actually authorized. So it's partially authorized underneath the Farm Bill. I believe it's Title IX of the Farm Bill deals with crop insurance, but it's actual enabling legislation are separate acts that I believe the last one was passed in I believe 2014, but essentially the funding that goes for crop insurance is detailed as as much as essentially the program needs. So there's no real need to constantly reauthorize appropriations for it. It's just constantly, constantly in the flow. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the federal crop insurance program. I'm sure it was well intended and probably had great impact at the time it was implemented. How long has it been around before again? So, yeah, I mean, exactly. Like a lot of these programs that are designed to help farmers or to help, you know, various other constituent groups, these were formed with the best of intentions. So the crop insurance program actually dates back to the Great Depression. Um, Weirdly enough, before the Great Depression, um, there were several attempts by private insurers to provide what's called multiple peril crop insurance. Um, However, because the risks that are attended to such insurance are so difficult to both predict and to insure against an actuarial 
actuarially sound or fair manner. Most of those companies that were offering those programs, and mind you, we're talking about 1890s, 1880s, 1910s, that sort of thing. Most of them either wound up discontinuing their programs or they wound up failing uh, just simply because the indemnities they were paying out wildly overshadowed the premiums they were taking in. Um, but it, the original program was found, was created in 1938 by the Federal Crop Insurance Program. It was originally administered directly by the FCIP, so the Federal Crop Insurance, I'm sorry, Federal Crop Insurance Corporation, so FCIC. Um, it was directly administered to farmers, and it wasn't until 1980 where we suddenly got these private sector entities starting to come in to actually provide and then service those various programs. And then there came with a whole rigmarole of subsidies and guaranteed rates of return and what have you that uh, have created such the, the kind of costly albatross that we have nowadays. Okay, and and this this is the part that uh, look I'm all for. Let's reform what needs to be reformed. Let's let's make cuts if that's what needs to be done. But uh, you point out here that uh, if they're going to do this right, they're going to have to pay off the losers. Talk to me about what that looks like. Yeah, so it's pretty common nowadays to see articles coming out or pol or issue briefs or policy papers about how the farm bill is wastely and which is constitute you know these special interests and stuff like that but kind of absent from this is the question how do we get to a better system even if it means just yeah. reducing the actual costs of current programs so what you have to kind of deal with is the sort of transitional issue a lot of beneficiaries of these programs have essentially had the value of these privileges capitalized into anything from their earnings to the value of their land to assets to if it you know if it's one of these insurance companies it's reflected in their stock prices or their assets and the problem is we try to reform these programs all of those things are going to see some kind of diminution in value so if we want to get a a sustainable change in the actual structure of these programs uh, we have to compensate the losers for the losses they're going to be sustaining by these policy transitions. Otherwise, we can pretty much expect they will resist these reforms tooth and nail. And in fact, every time the the, uh, the farm bill or some sort of agricultural legislation comes up before Congress, we see this kind of predictable boost in lobbying and campaign expenditures from agricultural PACs. And I mean, one of the most voracious PAC is uh, the Federal Crop Insurance PAC. Uh, these guys do not like anyone threatening their privileges. Has this created a learned dependence that that affects the agriculture community? I mean, I guess what I'm asking, Nick, could, could the agriculture community make it without the subsidies, without the federal, you know, backing the, the insurance uh, program and so forth? Could they make it on their own in the market? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it would obviously there would have to be a transition period. And that's why I was arguing in the piece that it'd be better to kind of, um, you know, ensure that there's like a time period for when how this program gets wound down. But in terms of private options or sort of non-market options for mitigating risk on the farm, farmers have access to options and futures contracts, they have marketing contracts. These are all sort of market-based ways that uh, farmers can use to actually mitigate against price or yield risk. Um, a USDA study that was published back in 2016 showed that about 156,000 farmers 
at the time of that study was done, use actual marketing contracts, while about 47,000 use either futures or options contracts to hedge against market price declines. And they use those contracts to cover about 40, at least 40% of their produce. So these are tools that are available. Um, they're not widely used simply because the crop insurance program crowds them out. doesn't make a lot of sense to pursue these options when you have this really cheap option available. Um, and then on top of that, you have sort of what are called on-farm risk mitigation strategies, where they can do anything from building up cash reserves to pursuing alternative lines of income. Um, so they kind of give an example. My grandfather grew carrots, he grew celery. Um, but on top of that, he was also a franchisee for Shell. He would deliver fuel to all the farmers in his community. On top of that, he would work for the local railroad. You know, there was a story my dad told where they delivered fuel in the middle of the night. And then my grandmother ran an antique business. So there's just ways they can diversify their income to help mitigate the shocks that may come with market cycles. And then, you know, there are other things like they can invest in alternative crop growing locations. They could raise livestock in addition to uh, crops, or they could invest in kind of specialized equipment or structures like greenhouses that uh, could allow them to grow crops that, again, allow them to avoid the sort of seasonal cycles in price and yield that uh, kind of put the strains on smaller or medium-sized farmers. And as we saw from New Zealand, these are strategies that have worked. Uh, New, Zealand, New Zealand's agricultural sector is thriving. And um, it, it does so without the support of its governments. And uh, I think, honestly, when you look at these examples, we can definitely say that private market options are definitely feasible for farmers. I love to see examples where, you know, somebody else says, well, look, but we're doing it and it's working. So it's it's nice to be able to point to real world examples. And yet I, I want to be sympathetic, too, for the for the fact that, you know, even when it comes to raising crops, there there are no guarantees. I, I've watched one too many episodes of Little House on the Prairie or whatever. I mean, how, <laughs> how many times do they lose their crop to hail and locusts and, you know, fire, whatever? Anyway, there's. A lot, of, a lot of things can can conspire against getting that Absolutely. food to market. Yeah, no, I mean, agriculture is a very risky line of business. And, um, you know, I mean, just the kind of existing strategies that I listed in the article, those exist presently and would likely expand to help kind of deal with the risks that a lot of farmers are dealing with. But there's no reason why, in the absence of sort of subsidized insurance or something of that nature, other alternative mechanisms will not come about. One thing that was really interesting was um, a New Zealand's Ministry of Primary Production actually put out a report on their agricultural sector back in 2017. And they pointed out how in the absence of a lot of state-based uh, support programs, a kind of robust network of sort of rural cooperative associations that help farmers who are in need or help insure against risk. A lot of like those friendly societies we saw um, in industrial revolution era, Britain helping workers uh, emerged to help kind of deal with the issues that came with, again, with market cycles, volatility. Um, so there's a room, there's definitely a room here for civil society to kind of play its role too. It's not all just either farmers handling it themselves or the markets. Well, I I have only lived in, in agriculture country for a couple of years, but I got to tell you, I have more respect for farmers when I when I see who is up early and who is out late and you know uh, 
the never ending work that goes into to putting food out there into the market. It's it's pretty impressive. So thanks thanks for a job well done on this article. Again, we're talking with Nick Thielman. Nick, where can people find you on social media? So I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I am also nowadays I'm on Muckrack. So people can just go and follow me there, and uh, if they want to see keep up with me and see what I'm talking about, see what I'm writing about. Brian, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again, man. Thank you. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome a familiar face and voice back to the program. That would be our friend uh, James Chernowski, who is, uh, well, let's just say you're a pretty busy guy, James. You're Young Voices contributor. You've actually, you've changed titles once or twice, I think, since the last time that we talked. Bring us up to speed on, on what you're doing with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I still have my affiliation with Young Voices, obviously, which is great. Love working with them. But um, I'm working at Americans for Prosperity now, where I'm a senior policy analyst focusing on issues surrounding technology and innovation more broadly. Um, so in that capacity, I get to work on a lot of fun topics, whether that's, um, you know, artificial intelligence increasingly these days, uh, uh, Section 230, antitrust, um, you know, the intersection of technology and government. So government surveillance, the, the list goes on and on. I'm usually uh, focusing on all kinds of tech issues. So it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun joining AFP and getting to work with them over the last couple of years now. Well, and with technology comes the subject of privacy. And, and this is something that uh, over the last, well, 20 some years, we have seen some very interesting challenges in particular, you know, the Patriot Act and, uh, you know, the war on terror, looking out, you know, for threats to, to America. Um, it seems like that kind of turned privacy policy on its head. Talk to me about uh, government surveillance and in particular, um, the Government Surveillance Reform Act that has been proposed. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, government surveillance is obviously a massive issue. As you kind of highlighted, after 9-11 happened, we had the Patriot Act um, go and pass because we were living in dangerous times. I was living in New York back then, so I'll never forget uh, what that day was like for me uh, and more so for my mom, who was living uh, rather working in the city at the time. So very scary. Um, but, you you know, you never waste a good crisis. And then you get government surveillance powers granted through legislation. Um, and then in 2008, um, you had actually the passage of this piece of legislation called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And what this would enable is for the government to go and collect the communications of non-U.S. persons. Um, but unfortunately, as we've had the Internet kind of develop and people are increasingly going online, uh, a lot of information about Americans gets incidentally collected when the government is pursuing this kind of a strategy here. And, you know, technically speaking, here in the United States, we have that lovely thing called the Constitution. And as far as I'm concerned, that is an illegal search of somebody who's otherwise not done a crime. And it's become an increasing problem because the government's been caught time and time and time again, misusing the authorities that are granted to them underneath Section 702 of FISA. Um, and therefore, what you've seen happen is that a lot of people have become increasingly skeptical of the government's ability to do this kind of stuff and needing desperate reforms to the program because every single time these these um, these atrocities kind of like get highlighted into the public domain, 
the people that are responsible for it also don't really get held to account. I think the worst punishment that I've heard of of somebody who's been caught violating the law here uh, has been a probation. So um, it's not all that great. Um, And therefore, what you have actually is a very interesting moment where you have uh, politicians and organizations from civil society across the political spectrum coming together to support a proposal called the Government Surveillance Reform Act, which seeks to go and modify uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, particularly Section 702. Um, to put up some guardrails around there, to introduce some accountability measures, to try and tackle some of the authorities of surveillance that get done underneath Executive Order 12333 uh, within the White House, more broadly speaking. So this is a very broad, very bold proposal that tries to go and tackle some of these fundamental issues because Right. Like I said, where where the Americans are at right now, you keep hearing about these things and it just undermines your faith in the very institutions that are responsible for keeping you safe. And that's not, I think, something that's in the long term national, you know, national security interest of the United States. So that's, I think, the core of the argument and the discussion that's going on right now around government surveillance. Man, I, you know, 20 years is a long time to, to see the, the attempt to kind of gradually roll back something that, that was put in place there. I guess it's a good illustration of don't implement a policy unless you, you really, really want it because they're much harder to get rid of once, once they're, you know, established. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's one thing that I've always said in my tech policy work, especially with pending proposals around various tech policy subjects, where at the end of the day, you are going and considering legislation that you as a member of Congress might not have to live with, but I certainly will um, for the rest of my life, because it will take a very long time to get something undone at the federal level should we go down that pathway. And I think that that's an unfortunate situation in some respects. It's also positive, I think, in terms of preventing other kinds of things that would be unaligned. But, you know, that's why we have to be very careful when we're especially when we're talking about empowering the government in particular ways and i think that that's a great example what you saw happen here with fisa again you had a very scary time happen there was a legitimate you know national security you know apparatus that you wanted to go and maintain because again you know national security does matter i don't think anybody's going to sit there and say that we shouldn't be trying to keep our nation you know safe from uh terrorist threats or other kinds of um threats that are out there facing this nation but the problem is, is that you can't just pursue that mission under any cost necessary. You can't go and, you know, as as that famous quote would say, you know, if you're willing to go and trade your liberty for a little bit of security, you're going to get neither. And that's exactly what I think you kind of have happening here is that you're trading civil liberties for, you know, in this case, privacy uh, and security, but you're not getting any of those things ultimately. And that's why you need reforms here, because people need to feel safe and secure from the government in, in many respects. Um, Again, when when you're doing nothing wrong, this authority has been misused to go and surveil on Black Lives Matter protesters. It's been misused to go and target uh, protesters that were at the Capitol on January 6th. It's been misused to go and target a sitting member of Congress. It's been used to go and target political donors to a campaign, right? So I think that the, the documented abuses here just are really, really egregious. And the only path forward is to go and put in some reform so that way we can actually restore the lost trust in these very institutions that are meant to keep us safe. So who pushes back the hardest against reform? I guess I have to ask who who's most vested in keeping things the way that they are? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I would say there are people that are sympathetic to the intelligence community, more broadly speaking, that is uh, certainly pushing back on this because they think that um, within the Government Surveillance Reform Act, for example, one of the staple things in there is get a warrant. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, something that, you know, you should want to do uh, if you're respecting, uh, you know, the confines of the Constitution, particularly when you're targeting Americans communications as a part of a query of the 702 database. 
Um, you know, that's one of the biggest things, and that's something that the intelligence community has been very staunchly opposed to. And it's also something that the Biden administration has been opposed to, even though when their their spokesperson made comments about this particular proposal, they hadn't read the bill. So find it interesting always that they think that they can comment on something they haven't read. But there's also one added extra bit of, um, I think, irony here when it comes to the Biden administration's approach on this exact authority, because back when it was 2007, 2008, and this was being deliberated in Congress, Joe Biden gave a speech on the Senate floor opposing this very surveillance authority, saying how it was unconstitutional and that it would result in the violations of American civil liberties. And now you fast forward 15 years later since that was passed, and he's sitting there stumping for it. So that's very interesting. And I think that that's a real unfortunate and missed opportunity for the Biden administration, where they can actually have a moment to, to step out and lead on, on being a leader of trying to get the government to respect and constrain itself from abusing the vast powers that it has under, under the law. Well, I'm grateful for those who uh, who are willing to step forward. And it looks like, am I seeing this correctly? Um, Senators Wyden and Lee, is, is Senator Wyden, he's from Oregon, correct? Is he a Democrat? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Senator Wyden is, is a Democrat. Mike Lee is obviously a staunch conservative right there out of the great state of Utah. Um, you know, and then on the House side, you have another great conservative in Representative Warren Davidson with a California Democrat and Zoe Lofgren gotcha. um, that are pairing up with with each other to go and put this measure forward. And then you've got, again, uh, Representative Andy Biggs, who's who's a very strong conservative name as well. Um, you've got um, even like Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think that's going and endorsing this kind of legislation. So you have people across the political spectrum that realize that there's a problem and they think that this legislation is the solution here. So it is a very unique moment because even when we had this conversation just a few years ago um, at the tail end of the Trump administration going into the Biden administration around a different surveillance authority, Section 215, we couldn't go and come to the table and ultimately get any kind of reforms done there. So it, it lapsed. And what happened was is that many of the things that they were doing under that program just got recategorized into other existing authorities and less accountable, a little bit more of a black box, if you will. And I don't think that you want to see the same thing happen here to Section 702. There is actually a good purpose for having Congress function in its oversight role here. So I think that, again, as we're looking forward, we need to just, you know, be vigilant and focus on this and get it done. James, um, I know there's a lot of stuff that's volatile in the world. Are, are we in danger? Yeah, let's just say if there was another um, very large scale terrorist attack or something that was very attention getting in the vein of 9-11, are we in danger mm -hmm. of, of seeing all of these protections swept away and maybe even steeper or, or more intrusive surveillance uh, being promoted and suggested? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that if you had a similar event pass out that you would you would see people going and clamoring for, um, you know, getting these authorities back to the government in a more expansive way than they otherwise would. Um, and I think that that would be a massive mistake. Um, you know, we've seen, I think, recently with the conflict in Israel and Hamas that some, uh, you know, that some folks there are trying to point to that as a reason for why this kind of stuff matters. And again, I don't disagree with the notion that there's there's a scary world out there right now. And we have a lot of high tension, um, geopolitically speaking, uh, with these various areas in the world. But Again, it can't come at any cost, and it's not the only tool at the at the government's disposal in order to gain surveillance um, that it needs or to go and gain the, the intelligence that it needs to effectively operate and protect this country from threats. Again, we are talking with James Chernowski. Uh, James, where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me on uh, X, uh, and I guess formerly known as Twitter, over at uh, JamesCZ19. Uh, and then you can always go to the Young Voices website and check out my latest commentary on all tech issues there.